persons, creation by God. Man is fallen and sinful. We cannot save ourselves. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. The deity of Christ, that Jesus is God the Son. Become a man that he was born of a virgin. Died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. And now we're going to talk about Jesus' bodily resurrection. And so if you open up to Matthew 28, Matthew 28, we'll be looking at that passage first. And so let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in, in prayer one more time that uh, he anoints the, uh, the preaching of the word. Father, in Jesus' precious name, like, like many people, Lord, before I came to you, I led people astray with my words and my deeds. And so um, I pray, Lord, that, uh, that that would not be the case today, that, uh, that you would anoint me with your spirit to proclaim your truth and to rightly interpret your perfect word so that, uh, so that no one would be led astray. There would be no stumbling blocks here. I pray, Lord, you give us all the courage to, to diligently search the scriptures to see whether what is preached from this pulpit or what we hear anywhere else to see if it is your truth. And I pray that anything that contradicts your truth, we would reject. I pray, Lord, you'd open our hearts and minds to receive truth from your word and then empower us to apply these truths to, to our lives not for our own glory, but for your glory and to build your kingdom and through your power. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. amen. You know, I, was that? I forgot to say thank you to everybody on behalf of the pastoral staff for the pastoral blessing, the offering. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks a million for the, the, the pastoral gifts and, and stuff, the Christmas gifts to the pastors and all. That is a blessing and a half. You guys are... You guys are way too nice, big time. So, but thank you so much for that. And uh, so now we're going to be talking about Jesus' bodily resurrection. Next Sunday we will have a, a Christmas message, as well as the, you know, uh, Christmas Eve. We'll be focused on Christmas. So, um, so hopefully nobody's disappointed here. Wanted to hear a, a message on Christ's birth instead. They're going to hear a message on the bodily resurrection of Christ. But this is, again, this is not one of those optional doctrines. Say, well, I'm one of those believers who believes in the resurrection. My friend Tony doesn't believe in the resurrection. He's a different kind of Christian. That's not a different kind of Christian. That's a non-Christian. Okay? And, um, and so we're going to see that Jesus' bodily resurrection is central to um, the gospel. You know, I worked in landscaping after I got out of the Marine Corps. Boy, I was lousy at it and uh, it only lasted a few months not long enough for me to get fired but they probably would have eventually but but all the guys I was working with were like uh, guys in their 30s that were just trying to make enough money to buy enough uh, beer for them to drink at bars during the weekend and stuff like that and but there was this real nice guy Charlie he, he was a real party animal and all but uh but I remember talking to Charlie, and uh, you know, when I on our breaks, they go smoke pot, I go read my Bible, and uh, and um, but I told I told Charlie, I said you should go to my church, you know, and back then I was going to Cal old Calvary Chapel, and back uh, about in 1984, and I remember telling this Charlie guy, he was a really nice guy, he was a tough guy, 
he was a party animal, but uh, I took kind of took a liking to Charlie, and, uh, and he liked to chew and spit it all over the places. We did our landscaping, and but I told him, I said, Charlie, you ought to go to you ought to go to church someday. Why don't you go to my church? I go to Calvary Chapel, and uh, and um, he looked at me kind of puzzled, and he said that he said if I walked into church, he said, uh, old Jesus, old Jesus Christ would roll over in his grave, and. Uh, and so I had to tell him, I said, Charlie, that's, that's the whole point of going to church and Christianity is he's not in his grave. He rose from the dead. And then he just kind of looked at me like I was a nut and went right back to shoveling whatever he was shoveling. And, um, but let me tell you, if the, if the tomb wasn't empty, if the king wasn't risen, what are we even doing here? Okay. We're going to see what Paul says that uh, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the dead won't be raised. We won't be raised. And if the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We have hope. For our king has conquered the grave. So it shouldn't even, I don't care how powerful people are on this planet. They want to intimidate us and step all over us and set up a surveillance state and watch our every move and clamp down on biblical Christianity. Uh, hey, my king conquered the grave. You know, I mean, what's the, what's the worst that the ruthless leaders of this world can do to us? They can kill us. My king conquered the grave. You cling to Jesus, you win. Okay. And so we need to talk about Jesus' bodily resurrection. I'll give you one of the historical accounts of it. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll look at Matthew 28, the first 10 verses here. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Skipping down to uh, verse, uh, in fact, we'll go right pick up at verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held them by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Then skipping down to verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And uh, amen. And so that's our mission. We're to go, make disciples. We're not supposed to just make converts. We're supposed to try to lead people to Christ and then help them to grow in the Lord. Okay? Um, you know, we don't want to be like the spiritual uh, side of those physical guys who make physical babies and then leave them alone and don't raise them. We want to lead people to Christ and then either disciple them or send them somewhere where they can be discipled. We go, make disciples, and baptize in the name of the triune God and teach people. And that's what we're doing here at this church, celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptizing converts. And um, uh, But we do that not only because he died on the cross for our sins, but because he rose. He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. Um, death is man's greatest enemy. If Jesus did not conquer the grave, we still should be in our misery. No resurrection. No. And so there's the historical account. And the, the next point I want to make, though, is that Jesus' resurrection was bodily. I can remember probably about 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, driving in a car with a, uh, a Bible college professor, in fact, the president of a Bible college, and there was a pastor who had been a youth minister, and then he had just become a senior pastor of a church in the back seat. And I was explaining to the, uh, the college professor how some guy out of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School was watering down Jesus' bodily resurrection and turning it into a, a spiritual resurrection. And, um, and so we were talking about how horrible that is, that, you know, Jesus bodily rose from the dead. That's what the scriptures teach. And, um, well, we went on talking for a few minutes, and then we realized the guy in the back seat, the new pastor, was weeping. And found out, I became lifelong friends with the guy, but found out that the guy, he said, oh, I grew up in the church. I became a youth pastor, his youth pastor for years. And, um, and now I'm a senior pastor. And I didn't know that he bodily rose from the dead. Now, he was part of a denomination that there wasn't a big emphasis on doctrine. Now, things have changed with that denomination over the past 30 years. They're starting to emphasize the essential doctrines of the faith. But they didn't emphasize them much back then. And this guy wept. And that showed me he was... He was a man of God who, when he made, makes a mistake, he, it hits him hard. And, uh, and so he's been, you know, for the past 30-some years, he's been proclaiming Jesus' bodily resurrection. But this idea was just a spiritual resurrection. If it was just a spiritual resurrection, you don't have an empty tomb. Okay? You don't have post-resurrection appearances where Jesus shows the wounds in his hands and his feet. So Jesus' resurrection was bodily. We don't have time to turn there, but in John 2, 19 to 21, when Jesus cleansed the temple, and the Jewish religious leaders said, give us a sign that you have the authority to cleanse the temple. Jesus said, tear this temple down, I'll raise it up in, in three days. And they're like, well, wait a minute, it took King Herod 46 years 
to build this temple and you're going to you're going to build it in three days. And then John said they didn't realize he was talking about the temple of his body. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so they made they call it the New World Translation. It's actually the New World Perversion of God's word. And, um, and they just change it wherever they want to change. They forgot to change that passage. So they have Jesus predicting he's going to bodily rise from the dead, yet they deny the bodily resurrection. Uh, and Doubting Thomas wanted to touch the, the wounds in Jesus' hands and feet and his, his, his pierced side. And Jesus, when he appeared to him, said, go ahead. And, uh, and of course, Thomas dropped to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. And then in Luke 24, let's turn there, Luke 24 the apostles thought they were looking at a spirit. They were freaking out. Luke 24, verses 36 to 43. Luke 24, 36 to 43. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And so Jesus went out of the way. He said, look, you don't believe that I bodily rose from the dead. Touch the wounds. You don't believe that I bodily rose from the dead. Give me some food. And he ate food in their midst. I'm, I'm actually really glad he did that because the Bible says, you know, First John, I think it's in chapter 3, says when we see him, we like him, for we'll see him as he is. Our, we're going to receive our resurrection bodies someday. And eating is still going to be part of that. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing to look forward to. I bet, the food, I bet the food is going to be really good. But whatever the case, Jesus' resurrection was bodily. In fact, all the Greek words for resurrection, anastasis, anestomai, egero, all the words, the Greek words, talk about a, the rising of a body, okay? Uh, so the idea of a spiritual resurrection, you can make a metaphor, spiritual metaphor, symbolic language out of the resurrection, but the word resurrection itself means literally a resurrection. And it was something that uh, the three theistic religions, Christianity, the one true faith, Judaism, which now rejects Jesus as their Messiah, and Islam, a false religion, have always proclaimed, the three Western religions, the three theistic faiths, have always proclaimed a future bodily resurrection of the followers of the true God. It was the Eastern religions that rejected that. In fact, uh, <clears throat> many Christians have fallen prey to uh, Plato's, the Greek philosopher Plato's, immortality of the soul. And they act like after you physically die, you're just going to be a disembodied soul forever and ever. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if, if you die right now and you're a believer, your spirit goes to be with the Lord, you have conscious existence, but you're not glorified yet. <clears throat> There'll be no presence of sin there, but God's not going to finish the work that he starts in you until your body is raised and it's changed in the twinkling of an eye, and so you'll have that physical resurrection. So we're adopted sons and daughters of God right now, spiritually. But Paul says in Romans 8, we're still awaiting the adoption of our bodies. And there's an awful lot, I can guarantee you, there are an awful lot of churches right now that want to be practical and they're trying to make God relevant. By the way, if you go to a church that's trying to make God relevant, confront the pastor, okay? I don't know why anybody would think we got to make God relevant. If God is God, he's omni-relevant, if he didn't will us to continue to exist in the very next second, everything would go out of existence. He's as relevant as it gets. Okay? And, um, but whatever the case, there are people that go to churches that all they talk about is practical application. How to have a good family? Well, that's good. The Bible talks about that. How to be a good person? Well, good. The Bible talks about how we can grow in the Lord and be sanctified. But that's not the core issue of the gospel. If we don't get back to basic Christian beliefs, you could have people walking around professing Christians who don't even know that there's a future bodily resurrection awaiting them. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as the first fruits from the dead. And so Jesus' resurrection, it happened in history, and it was a bodily resurrection. And, uh, and so now look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to spend some time here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is often referred to as the resurrection chapter because it talks about the resurrection. And um, it's interesting, too, because the Corinthians were not denying Jesus' bodily resurrection. Even though they were influenced by Greek philosophy, they accepted Jesus' bodily resurrection, but they were influenced by Greek philosophy enough to not proclaim the, re the future resurrection of all believers. And so what Paul does is he defends the bodily resurrection, which they already believe, and then shows them this is the down payment guaranteeing our future bodily resurrection. You see, it's a package deal. If Jesus bodily rose, his followers will be bodily raised, okay, to immortality. If um, Jesus did not rise, then we will not be raised either. And, uh, and so what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, the first 11 verses, is the earliest gospel preached. He's, he's going back to the earliest days of the preaching of the gospel. He starts off in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. Now, Paul's writing this about 55 AD. Even liberal scholars who don't believe accept 1 Corinthians as one of Paul's original letters written by Paul himself around 55 AD. And we're going to quote a little bit from the book of Galatians. And they would accept the book of Galatians as well. So even liberal critics acknowledge, yeah, Paul wrote this. I disagree with him, but Paul wrote this. Hey, look, if I got to choose between you, some liberal critic 2,000 years after the fact, or the apostle Paul, 
okay, as for me and my house, we're going to side with Paul on this one, okay? And so Paul says this, moreover, brethren, it is 55 AD, but he planted the Corinthian church in 51 AD. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. When did he preach the gospel to him? Four years earlier, 51 AD. Let's say Jesus was crucified about 30 AD. So now we're within 21 years of the, the crucifixion. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. We're saved by the gospel. Okay? We accept the gospel and uh, trust in Jesus for salvation. We are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you had superficial faith. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And then he quotes an ancient creed, which goes back to the earliest days of Christianity. Most, most scholars, New Testament scholars, would date this ancient creed to within three to seven years after the crucifixion. Some even anti-Christian scholars like Gerd Ludmann and the, the late uh, Marcus Borg, they have, of the Jesus Seminar, radically far-left guys, they dated it to just within one year of uh, the crucifixion. They believe Paul got this, received this creed when he got saved uh, within one year of the crucifixion. And for I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received. That's the language of a rabbi passing on to his disciples what he received from his rabbi. And then he quotes it. And this creed reads real choppy in the Greek, but if you translate it back into Hebrew or Aramaic, which the earliest church was Hebrew, okay, you, you trace it back to that language and it reads like a poem. And so it turns out this is an ancient creed or hymn that was recited or sung in the early church before the New Testament was even written. It goes back to the earliest days of Christianity. Uh, and here, here's that, that creed. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, he said it was predicted in the Old Testament. And that uh, he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Now, at that point, Paul adds something to the creed of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. What he's saying is, say, hey, some of these guys are still alive. Most of these guys are still alive. So you don't believe me, go and talk to the witnesses, okay? Then he gets back to the creed. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. James was the half-brother of Jesus, used to mock Jesus. And um, let me tell you, the only way you're going to believe your half-brother is God incarnate, the Savior of mankind, and the Jewish Messiah, you're going to have to see him risen from the dead. And I would have, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall when Jesus appeared one-on-one -on -one to James. You know, and um, James is thinking, uh, man, here he was a kook. He thought he was the Messiah. He embarrassed our family and we're devout Jews. And then he gets crucified the most shameful way to die, nailed naked to a tree by the pagan Romans in a public place. Our religious reputation is totally shot. You know, and, and that would mean everything to James. And then, boom, Jesus appears in a room to him. And it's like, okay, uh, I think I need a little, 
little transformation in my theology here and, um, and sees his big brother Jesus there, the risen Savior. And then Paul adds something else to the creed, his own account. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. And uh, uh, Paul adds Jesus' appearance to him. Paul was persecuting the church. It was about a year after Jesus had been crucified. He's en route to Damascus with letters from the Jewish priests, the Sadducees, giving him permission to arrest Christians in Damascus and to forcibly bring them back to Jerusalem for trial before the Sanhedrin so they can be imprisoned or executed. Okay? And a, a funny thing happened on the way to Damascus. Okay? Jesus appeared to him in a bright light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I mean, he was like, okay, I'll, I know the Lord. I know Yahweh's talking to me. Now, who are you? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Saul's like, oh, wow. Because Saul interpreted the Old Testament legalistically. He looked for technicalities, rules and regulations. And um, he realized, now that I see Jesus, I've got to change my hermeneutics, my science of biblical interpretation, and I now have to reinterpret the Old Testament Christocentrically, looking for Messiah, not rules and regulations to try to earn your salvation, but looking for your Savior, the Messiah. And he had three days to think about it because he was blind for three days. And um, by the time he got baptized in Damascus, and so had to rethink, he probably had large portions, if not the Old Testament, memorized, but he had misinterpreted it. And, uh, and so that's this ancient creed. By the way, what does he say as one born out of due time? Uh, he, he's, like saying, he's like saying, I'm like a baby born in the 11th month. Okay, he's supposed to be born in, the, in nine months. Being born out of due time means way later. Well, all the post-resurrection appearances to Jesus of Jesus uh, were before he ascended to heaven, except Paul's. It was about a year later. And so he said, I'm one born out of due time. Um, and then he said, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, I, if I'm counseling you because you got some sinful behavior going on, don't, don't pull this out of context. Say, oh, I am what I am by the grace of God. No, if you're a sinner, that, that's your fault, okay? Paul's basically saying, look, I'm tearing it up. I don't deserve to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but I'm turning the world upside down because of God's grace. And that's why you could say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Most of us probably shouldn't say that. I am what I am by the grace of God. I mean, um, if you're a mess, don't blame God. Okay? And um, um, I don't even like talking like that. You know, I just want to serve Jesus till the day I die. And... Um, and I'll let the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But I'm not dead yet. You're not dead yet. Okay? 
But Paul was tearing it up. He could say, I am what I am by the grace of God, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, than the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So, you know, if you like Phil Fernandez and, and all, that's, those are the changes that God Okay, you wouldn't, probably wouldn't like the old me. And uh, with Paul, Paul said, look, man, I'm tearing it up for Jesus, but that's the grace of God at work in me. And in verse 11, he said, therefore, whether it was I or they, the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. Okay, but this gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again and appeared to his disciples Paul is quoting this in 55 A.D., and he said, I preached this to you when I led you to the Lord in 51 A.D., but it's an ancient creed that goes back to the early 30s A.D., okay? Um, take a look at the very next book. Probably only have to turn a page or two. Oh, no, it's, there's 2 Corinthians. I forgot 2 Corinthians. You got to turn probably, probably a good 10 or 15 pages, just depending on the size of the print. Uh, the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, and verses 11 and 12. Now, now Paul, I, I really believe Paul is writing this letter. It's his preemptive strike before he goes to the Jerusalem council because he's hearing rumors that the apostles in Jerusalem are denying salvation by faith alone that they're, they're teaching salvation by faith in Jesus plus circumcision. The Gentiles have to get circumcised and become Jews before they can trust in Jesus for salvation. Now, it turned out the apostles agreed with him that uh, these were rumors and the false teachers were not getting their message from the apostles. Um, but Paul had to make it clear that, hey, I'm going to preach the true gospel. Even if we, meaning the apostles, or even an angel from heaven, if we preach a gospel other than that which has already been preached, let him be accursed. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. It's not salvation through faith plus works. That's a false gospel. Okay? And, um, um, and so Paul's not sure where the, the apostles stand. When he goes down to Jerusalem, they agree with him, and, um, and then he could take the Jerusalem decree. And the fact that he didn't do this shows me that this is, this is written before the Jerusalem Council, which was 49 A.D., so it was about 48, 48 to 49 A.D. He also mentions two visits to Jerusalem. He had two visits to Jerusalem before his third visit, which was the Jerusalem Council. And so look in Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, But I make known to you, brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I, for I neither received it from man, nor was taught it, but it came through revelation to Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, I did not get the gospel that I preach from Peter and John and James and the other apostles. I didn't get it from them, from men. I got it directly from Jesus. Okay, so what he's saying is, if those guys end up apostatizing from the faith, I don't take my marching orders from them. I take my marching orders from King Jesus. Okay, 
I got the gospel from him. Uh, but then he says down a little further, verses 15 through 20. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, you realize that, you know, God probably separated all of us from our mother's womb for some kind of a mission. We're all on a mission from God. Now, some of us don't come to Christ and don't take on that mission. So God gets somebody else to get it done. Um, but there's, even as a non-believer, I was gifted in certain areas, God-given talents that God was able to use once I did get saved. But now I got to use it for God's glory and not my own. But, but here, from his mother's womb, God called him through his grace. He didn't deserve it. To reveal his son in me that I might preach among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. So he says, I, when I got saved, I didn't go to Jerusalem and find out, hey, what am I supposed to preach? Nor did I go up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem because it's uphill, it's on four mountaintops, to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, he preached in Arabia, and returned again to Damascus, this is to the north of Israel, of Jerusalem. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remain with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. What Paul is saying is, look, I got my gospel message directly from Jesus about a year, when, when Paul got saved, about a year after the crucifixion, and I began to preach the gospel. And I didn't even meet Peter, and James, and the other apostles until like three years later. So this was the gospel I already preached. What gospel? It's the same gospel as 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Don't let anybody ever fool you that the, the gospel message just is a bunch of legendary myths that, that came on the scene hundreds of years later. By the way, no scholar holds to that anymore. Now what they have to do is they have to try to date the New Testament books a little later and say, well, before Paul started writing about 50 AD, you got a 20 year gap. So now they're trying to have all these changes within 20 years. What I'm showing you is they're in a 20 year gap. Okay. There's not even a 10 year gap. Now, the ancient creeds, you got three to seven years, but Paul's saying, no, this goes right back to the start. He said, I didn't get my gospel from the apostles but when I went and visited with them, they confirmed we're preaching the same gospel. Okay? And uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, now this is either 14 years on top of the three years, which would be 17 years after Paul got saved, which would be one year after Jesus was crucified. So this would be about 48 A.D., or the 14 years could include the three years. It could be 14 years after he got saved, which would have put it about 45 A.D., okay? Uh, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation, the Lord told him to go, and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. See, what he's saying is, look, hey, I'm a humble guy. Just in case I'm preaching a false gospel, maybe I got something wrong. Let me check my notes with the notes 
of the original apostles and make sure I'm on board. I'm preaching the same gospel here. Okay. Then verses seven to 10. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles had been been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised, the Jews was to Peter for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, the Jews also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, the half-brother of Jesus, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, pillars of the Jerusalem church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. He's saying, look, I met with them three years after I got saved. I met with them 14 to 17 years after I got saved. These guys extended the right hand of fellowship. They said, Paul, you are preaching the gospel that we preached from the beginning. So if you want to turn the gospel into a myth and you're looking for a gap, there is no gap. If Trinity Bible Fellowship is doing a good job here, on the core issues, I am preaching to you and John or Willis or Pat or whoever gets behind a pulpit. We are preaching to you the gospel that was preached on day one. I mean, Larry Hurtado from the University of Edinburgh, he shows that uh, the start of the church, the Christian church started when, you know, Jesus died, rose again, appeared ascended to heaven and then baptized the church on the Feast of Pentecost, that they were proclaiming from day one Jesus not only as risen, but Jesus as God incarnate. Okay? That if they didn't proclaim Jesus as God, they would have just been considered another branch of Judaism. Say, well, they believe that Jesus guy rose from the dead and that he's, um, uh, that he's the Jewish Messiah. Just a weird branch of Judaism. But no, the Jews couldn't tolerate him because they also taught that Jesus is God. So you could show the earliest preaching of the gospel preached that Jesus is God incarnate, he is the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of mankind, and he bodily rose from the dead. Right back to the earliest days uh, of Christianity. And so with, with Paul and Barnabas, they extended the right hand of fellowship. They said, yeah, you're preaching the same gospel we preach. So Paul is saying, when I go to the Jerusalem Council, if it turns out bad, they change their views, not me. I'm preaching the same gospel that was delivered to the saints on day one. By the way, you've got to have the same attitude as Paul. Paul says earlier in Galatians 1.10, look, if it was my goal to please man, I wouldn't try to please Christ. Because I live to please Christ, I'm not going to be popular with people. But some of us know friends who were professed to be Christians for decades. And then they walked away from the faith. Okay? And we got to say, look, even if people I love walk away from the true faith and preach a false gospel, I'm going to preach the gospel the faith once for all delivered to the saints until Jesus comes back. We're going to see churches. They're already doing it. We're going to see churches going woke. 
more and more churches that say, well, if the government says we'll get in trouble if we don't teach this, this, and this, then we'll change our views and we'll teach those things. We got to be like Paul where he says, look, you know, I got to do what I got to do. The government, you got to do what you think you got to do, okay? I'm property of Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus for salvation, you're property of Jesus too. I belong to King Jesus, and I will preach his word till the day I die. And if you want to shut me up, you can kill me. But as we're studying today, my king conquered the grave. Man's greatest enemy. And so Paul said, no, I'm going to preach Jesus. Now, there was one thing that they, they wanted out of Paul. Verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the poor in Jerusalem, the very thing which I also was eager to do. That's the only thing. So he's saying, look, they preached the same gospel that I preached, Paul said. Same gospel that Paul preached, the apostles preached from day one. They just wanted to make sure that the Gentiles, if they could raise some funds, and not forget that they came out of the Jerusalem church. The gospel came, the Messiah, the gospel came from Jerusalem, and they wanted to help with the poverty in Jerusalem. And Paul said, yeah, we got no problem with that. I mean, you get back to Romans 10.9, an ancient baptismal creed, one of the most ancient ones, and um, that you, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So proclaiming Jesus' bodily resurrection was always central and essential to the gospel. In fact, the, the late D. James Kennedy, a great scholar, a great pastor, Presbyterian pastor, he did this gospel explosion type training that led literally millions of people to Christ and helped local churches lead people to Christ and baptize them. And, um, but somebody turned around and said, you know what? You preach that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We need to trust him for salvation. But you don't have a big enough emphasis on Jesus' resurrection. Now, D. James Kennedy, when he listed the initials of all the degrees he had, you know, had several doctorate degrees, the line of... Degrees was longer than his name. So if anybody could have said, oh, knock it off. You, you couldn't do as good of a job as me. No, with D. James Kennedy, you know what he did? Look him up on, on YouTube someday. Great man of God. Um, he said, you know what? You're right. And he put out another edition of the Evangelism Explosion, which added the needed emphasis on Jesus' bodily resurrection. Okay. If Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead, in the end, death wins. And so the earliest preaching of the gospel proclaimed the resurrection. Now, back in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, the importance of the gospel. No resurrection, no hope. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. You know, there's people right now, 
As I speak, there are people attending churches that no longer proclaim the resurrection. I remember talking to a pastor in the area who was a liberal pastor, and uh, he believed Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He just rose again in the hearts of the apostles. That his body just rotted in the tomb. Try to find historical evidence for that. There is none. And, um, and he said, but I won't. He said, but don't worry. I won't give on the, on the divinity of Christ. Hey, the reason why we say the deity of Christ is because liberal scholars change the meaning of the word divinity. It used to mean that if you said, I believe in the divinity of Christ, you meant you believe Jesus was fully God. Once they, and, uh, but eventually they changed it to mean Jesus had that spark of divinity within him that we all have. He just exercised it greater than us. We need to just follow his example. But all humans have that spark of divinity. So we had to use the word deity instead. And they took a really good word and trampled it. And um, it's kind of like what New Agers try to do with the rainbow and politically correct people. When God gave us the rainbow to let us know he's not going to flood the entire earth again. And, um, um, but he said, but I won't give on the divinity of Christ. And I looked, he's a nice guy, but he's an unsaved. I mean, you got an unsaved guy behind a pulpit. What does it say about the rest of your church? And, um, oh, by, by the way, we, when we were going to rent their building from them, um, some of the politically correct people from the Kitsap County Human Rights Council who hated my guts and wrote nasty letters to the editor about me, this was back in the 1990s, and uh, called me all kinds of names, bad names, because I spoke out against bringing uh, homosexual drama into the public schools at taxpayers' funds. And, um, um, and so they had a church council where they asked me questions. And the way I answered the questions, I noticed the older people in their congregation said, they told their pastor, but pastor, don't we believe these things? And because uh, he's preaching to them in code. On Easter Sunday, if, if some of his big donors are elderly people who really believe Jesus rose, you won't be able to tell it from the sermon until after the sermon's over. He said, you really believe he rose from the dead? And so, no, no, he rose in the hearts of, so he was speaking in code. So they were pretty astonished that their pastor no longer believed um, the true historic beliefs of the faith. But when he told me that he believed, let me, if you're going to give up on the resurrection and then you're going to turn around and say, yeah, I still believe in the divinity or the deity of Christ. No, you don't. That's what I did. I told him, I said, no, you don't. You just think he had the spark of divinity more, a little more than anybody else. And he didn't argue with it. And um, but I've known too many people who play play that game. You got a you got a preacher behind a pulpit and he's playing games with God's word. That's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Okay, they're gonna just destroy the flock. And um, and uh, but uh, verse thirty two, the second half of verse thirty two. Paul, Paul's arguing, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we won't be raised from the dead. And then he says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay? If Jesus of Nazareth did not bodily rise from the dead, then human history is one big, long, 
cruel joke. In the end, suffering, evil, and death win. In the end, the whole universe is going to blow up. Okay? But if Jesus conquered the grave, if Jesus Christ is risen, if he is risen indeed, then we have hope. But if there's no resurrection, uh, there's no hope. Blaise Pascal argued that man's greatest enemy is death. Such a great enemy that if you don't find a solution to death, you're living like a fool, not looking for that solution. So Blaise Pascal said there's only two kinds of people who call themselves wise. Those who love God with all their hearts because they know him and those who seek God with all their hearts because they don't know him. Anybody else is a fool. Until you find deliverance from death, um, you're living like a fool. He says most people do what? They divert their attention. They go to diversions. Now it's computer games. When I was a little kid, it was black and white TV. Okay? And... Um, uh, but we diverted in Blaise Pascal's day. He said, what do people do to deal with death? They go dancing. They just divert their attention. Don't divert your attention. If, if you don't know where to find deliverance from death, your existence is just hanging in the balance. But there's a deliverer. If you're on your deathbed and you know life is leaving your body, just remember, we serve a king who's been there. He went into death and came out victorious. And so because of Jesus, there is hope. The importance of the gospel, no resurrection, no hope, no bodily resurrection to Jesus. Christianity is a joke. Uh, we're wasting our time. Our faith is useless. Our preaching is use useless without the resurrection. That's how important the, 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 uh, the uh, gospel of the resurrection is. That's how important Jesus' resurrection is. No resurrection, no hope. Now, I want us to look a little further in 1 Corinthians 15 and start applying this to us. Paul uh, refers to Jesus in verse 23 as our first fruits. He's the first fruits. It was the feast of first fruits. You know, Jesus was crucified on Passover, the feast of Passover. Then you have the feast of unleavened bread where the leaven is removed from the homes. Jesus removed our sins. And then the next day, Jesus rises from the dead on what? The feast of first fruits. Okay. Jesus is in the first fruits, feast of first fruits. You take the first produce of your crops and you dedicate it to God's service. And that's a guarantee. You're saying everything else that, that I'm going to produce, that I'm going to grow, belongs to the Lord. Now, the Lord wants you to take some of that and take care of your family and take care of your friends and things of that sort. Okay. But at the first fruits is a down payment guaranteeing the payment in full. Jesus is our first fruits. What guarantees that Phil Fernandez is going, his spirit will rejoin his body and his body will be resurrected 
and live forever and ever without a back brace, without a sore left knee, okay? Um, I, I got one fear. I got, I'm, I'm hoping I get some credit for weightlifting because it'd be a bummer to work real hard for like 60, 70, 80, 90 years on earth and then at the resurrection find out everybody's buffed, you know? And, um, but whatever, I'll just be glad to be there. Uh, ace, um, our mortal body is going to put on immortality. My old friend, Dr. Harry Leventhal, one of my professors from Southern Evangelical Seminary, just went to be with the Lord. He used to be a captain of the UCLA football team. He had to block against guys like Dick Buckus and Bubba Smith in the early 1960s and uh, was led to the Lord, a Jewish guy, was led to the Lord from the Old Testament prophecies that he has fulfilled by a guy named Hal Lindsey. And who um, was working for, for Campus Crusade for Christ back then. But he, from all, you know, this guy weighed 220 pounds soaking wet and was blocking 250 to 300 pound guys. And it beat on his body. And so he, he spent the last few decades of his life in a walker, sometimes in a wheelchair, horrible back pain, horrible pain. Um, he's not suffering anymore. Now, he's disembodied right now. But when he gets his resurrection body, same body but changed, um, there's not going to be any more pain or suffering. And so our future resurrection bodies, look, listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 42 to 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown, it's buried in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown, it is buried in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown or buried in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, the, the thing is, people see natural body, spiritual body, and they think, oh, so when we have a spiritual body, it won't be physical. No, no. The, the word soma for body means a physical body. The adjective there, spiritual, okay, you got to understand when they translated natural body, if you're going to translate this, very few times do I say that the translators know a lot more about the Greek than I do, the New Testament translators. Very rarely do I say they got it wrong. But they got it wrong here. Um if you're going to translate it natural body, then be consistent, okay? If you say it is sown a natural body, then you should say it is raised a supernatural body, okay? Because you know the word for natural in the Greek comes from the word suke for soul. And we don't think of souls as physical. So if you think... A spiritual body, that sounds too spiritual to be physical. Well, a soulish body sounds too soulish to be physical, but it's not. Right now we have our uh, soulish bodies, soma sukikas, soma sukikas. We have our, our soulish bodies right now, okay? When we're raised, we will have our soma pneumaticas, soma pneumaticas, Pneuma, the word for spirit. 
So it's, it's not talking about it being less than what it is now, but being more. The weaknesses will be removed. The presence of sin, the damage of sin on the human body will be removed. We're going to be like Jesus. So our spiritual bodies, I think we're going to be able to travel at the speed of thought. You know, Jesus, he only appeared on Sundays. So do we really think for 40 days he was like hiding under a canoe during the week? No, he was probably at the Father's right hand most of that time. Okay? And, um, and then it was time to appear. And he said, I want to be in the upper room. Boom, he's in the upper room. It wasn't like he was outside the upper room. He looked around, made sure nobody's looking, floated up and seeped through the wall. Okay? Don't underestimate what he did. He was probably at the Father's right hand. And he said, I want to be in the upper room. Boom, he's in the upper room. And so we're going to have supernatural bodies, spiritual bodies, the same bodies we have now, but transformed, changed, glorified, empowered, and we'll be able to travel at the speed of thought. And uh, uh, look at verses 50 to 57. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. Not all of us are going to die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, at the return of Christ, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, that's the body we got now, must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. See, Jesus has the first fruits. He wasn't the first one to rise from the dead. He was the first one to rise from the dead to never die again. So that his body was not just raised, but was transfigured, was glorified. So when this corruptible has put on the incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. The law is never meant to save. Try to obey the law in our own strength, we fall short. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the law? No. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us victory over death because he rose from the dead. And so because Jesus rose from the dead, those who trust in him will stay on the last day, uh, will be raised from the dead, and our mortal bodies will put on immortality. And then we'll close with verse 58. Uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not some non-important, negotiable doctrine. It is at the core of biblical Christianity. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and bodily rose from the dead. Now, verse 58, because of that, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is... Some of you are tired. I know I'm tired. Some of you are weary. Even though you're, the flesh is weak and it's been battered and beaten, maybe you don't feel like getting up in the morning and sharing Jesus with friends and working hard and taking care of your family. Sometimes you don't feel like going out there and serving others, especially, at least when I serve others, well, you're not there when I'm at hours in my study. Nobody's saying, amen, brother, when I'm studying, preparing sermons. But at least give a sermon, people can say, hey, it was a good sermon, pastor. Some of you, when you're serving Jesus, you're, 
you're underneath some some widow's car fixing a car. I've never seen a guy come out from underneath a widow's car to a standing ovation. You know? If, uh, I mean, if you're underneath somebody's car fixing it and you start hearing somebody saying amen, you'd freak out. I mean, okay? So an awful lot of you are serving the Lord. You're working to build God's kingdom, not your own. Nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. But Paul could say, because Jesus died for us and rose from the dead to conquer death for us, the work you do in the Lord is not in vain. You think nobody's looking? I can name at least three persons who are looking. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it's going to get tough. It's going to get hot in the kitchen. Many churches are going to lose their pastors. Okay? But you've got to keep on keeping on. You've got to be all that God called you to do. And you've got to serve the crucified, risen Savior. And you've got to know... Even if your life is at risk, when the church has to go underground, when you can't find employment because Christians can't be hired anymore and things of that sort, you got to know because Jesus rose from the dead, the work you do for his kingdom, the work you do in the Lord, is not in vain. They proclaimed it back then. 2,000 years later, we got to proclaim it from the rooftops today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so our work in the Lord is not in vain. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we love you, Lord, but just help us to love you more. And with the trials and temptations that we face daily, we get dragged down and knocked to and fro. And this is, our leaders don't love us anymore. Our culture is rejecting you. And while the gospel is growing in leaps and bounds in many countries, especially third world countries around the world, it's, it's in decline here. And the times are getting tough, Lord. May we never forget that your son became a man died on the cross for our sins. So if we trust in him alone for salvation, we receive eternal life. He died for our sins, and then he rose from the dead to conquer death, man's greatest enemy for us. So no matter how tough things get, Lord, may we remember that your son Jesus, he is risen, he is risen indeed, our work is not in vain. And someday, our king will return to take his stand upon the earth and make things right. All glory and honor on earth and in heaven be to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.
All glory and honor on earth and in heaven be to the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you, everybody, and uh, I luck today. Okay, so stay up here. If you go downstairs, they will put you to work. So stay up here.